0: It's Thursday, July 10th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Wowza, this LeBron James speculation has become so febrile. Teams trading away players on the come just to try to get LeBron James. Websites tracking the Cavalier owner's jet. They're doing deep analysis of the color scheme of a yet to be published page on LeBron James's website. The frenzy has gotten to the point, and this is shocking. But the Green family have told LeBron James that if he agrees to manage the Pepper Pike, Ohio Hobby Lobby outlet, they will pay for his IUD. Do you believe that? That's... How crazy it's gotten. So, underpinning this madness is the fact that there is a salary cap and that LeBron James is severely underpaid. This is absolutely true. He makes about 20 million or will make about 20 something million. He's worth at least 40 million, but those are the rules of the NBA. And it got me to wondering what if there were some other restrictions of trade leading to market inefficiencies that got this kind of attention? Maybe they'd sound something like this. Let's get ready to reauthorize the federal sugar subsidy.
1: Y'all ready for this?
0: We're gonna guarantee 75, 80, 85% of the U.S. sugar market.
2: The answer to the question everybody wants
0: to know. What's your decision? Um. Actually, Jim, I've made my decision. I'm going to take my trade tariffs to catfish. Oh, catfish fisheries, not lumber, not steel. And the lumber industry is burning lumber in effigy. They're hanging a piece of lumber from gallows made of basketball jerseys. And the steel industry is trying to burn a sheet of steel. But they obviously can't reach 2,750 degrees, which is the melting point of steel. Oh, the humanity. Y'all ready for this? Anyway, on the show today, more, or maybe I'll be humble and just say, some actual humor. We go inside the minds of comedians, and I'm going to cede my spiel over to the man who killed Hitler. But now, a ring, a peer-review ring has been broken up. how they do it and why? I've got to be honest, I do not read the Journal of Vibration and Control. I mean, back in the good old days when it was just the Journal of Vibration and then they acquired control, I thought things would be the same, but they never were. But it turns out I've done myself a favor because 60 articles have just been retracted from this scholarly journal, Vibration and Control. In fact, there was a peer review ring. It has all been uncovered or at least covered by Retraction Watch, the excellent service that blows the whistle on, I would guess you would call it academic fraud, malfeasance, nonfeasance, general lying. Ivan Aransky is the co-founder of Retraction Watch. He's also the global editorial director of MedPage Today. He reads a lot of scholarly journals and notices when one of them says, oops, we shouldn't have printed that. Hello, Ivan. How are you?
2: Great. Thanks for having me, Mike.
0: What is Sage Publishers? Because they were the ones who found this ring.
2: Sure. So Sage Publishers is a, I would say, medium-sized academic publisher. They do a lot of scholarly journals that are supposed to be peer-reviewed, and I think they actually are peer-reviewed, but sometimes people can slip up, which is what happened here.
0: They somehow noted that uh, at least one researcher was trying to game the system. What did they uncover?
2: So what they uncovered was that this one researcher in Taiwan, Peter Chen, had somehow created lots and lots of aliases, email aliases, in their peer-review system. So journals have these, and publishers have these peer-review systems, where someone submits a paper, a manuscript, and then, in this case, the journal asks, well, who might peer-review this manuscript? Who might look over this and make suggestions and say whether we should publish it? And so what this person seems to have done is make up lots and lots of email aliases, fake email addresses, in order to allow himself to do peer review, and also to allow other people, people who appeared to be other people but were actually him, publish all sorts of papers in this journal that cited his papers, which is exactly the currency of scholarly publishing. It's exactly the currency of academia being cited by other researchers. So
0: It became a fraudulent feedback loop, essentially. Exactly. So 60 articles have been retracted. Do we know if this Peter Chen, if that is his name, was the only guy trying to game the system? Were the others, or at least the names of the other people, just people he invented, or were there others involved in this scam?
2: They haven't actually said how many people were involved. We asked them that direct question, and they said, we don't really know, but we did find these 130 email addresses that we couldn't Nobody responded to them when you know when we uh, sent them emails there, or they didn't respond sort of in a way that made us believe who they were. So it's entirely possible that the Peter Chen created 130 addresses. It's entirely possible that 130 people created 130 fake addresses, or of course you can do the math in between.
0: I would imagine that the institution of peer review, which goes back a long time, it used to be in the staid Ivy-covered hall. It wasn't as open to fraud, perhaps. Now that the world of academia is everywhere and now that it's easy to create an alias on the internet and maybe some of these researchers or people that no one else has known before is that one of the reasons that this is uh it's vulnerable to um being gamed
2: i think you're right there there's certainly an aspect of that the other thing that's happening which i think goes along with that is science has become just like every other field of human endeavor science has become extremely specialized so, honestly, there may be only a handful of people in the world who can adequately and sort of appropriately peer-review manuscripts in a particular field. Well, that means you're going to be vulnerable because you can't ask those five people to peer-review everything in your journal. They, they don't have time, and they're going to ask you, you know, why aren't you finding anybody else? And so what you're left is really relying on the authors to ask, you know, who, who are the people, and you can't possibly know who all these people are the other fact is, and I think to pull back a little bit on this, the incentives that we've created in in science and the, the pressure to publish, the pressure to get tenure, the pressure to continue getting grants, it's all based on papers. And that's why you see so many journals in the world, thousands and thousands of journals, so many papers being published, and so many retractions, quite frankly. These things are all linked. And so if we don't take a look at those sort of deeper problems, peer review is always going to be you know somewhat limited it's a bit like churchill said about democracy right uh... it's absolutely the worst system we could possibly try for reviewing and vetting papers Uh, except for every other one that we've ever tried.
0: That's true, but it doesn't mean you don't have election observers, right? And it doesn't mean that you don't have a vibrant, you know, board of elections to make sure things aren't being faked. And as I read the studies, and I'm not immersed in it as you are, but, you know, follow the money seems to be a decent mantra. So what is it? These publishers, they don't want to take a good hard look at themselves because if they lift up the rock, it might expose things that they don't want to know?
2: There's a tremendous amount of resistance, a tremendous amount of stubbornness on the part of journals that we see all the time. We'd like to say that some of it is changing. Uh, We've certainly seen some healthier attitudes among some publishers in the past several years. But, you know, this is a big industry. It's a big sort of source of revenue for a lot of people. And and also, scientists don't always like to complain about it because they know that these journals, they're going to direct their fate. They're going to actually have a lot to say about whether they get their next grant. And they don't want to go on the record saying that there's all these problems. One of the common things we hear is when we talk to people about a paper that's been retracted is, oh, you know, everyone in the field knew that that was crap. (laughs) And we'll say, well, why didn't anybody say anything?
0: Ivan Oransky is co-founder of Retraction Watch, and he also writes for MedPage today. Thank you, Ivan. Thanks, Mike. And The Gist is sponsored by Audible. Maybe you've heard of Audible if you've ever listened to a podcast before, but now The Gist is sponsored by Audible. Here are some nice things about Audible. There are over 150,000 titles to choose from in every genre. There's the app that you could use very easily on iPhones, Android, or Windows, and you could download and listen on 500 different kinds of MP3 players, an iPhone, an Android, an iPod, all that stuff. And here's an audiobook I love. I was stuck in Canada after the World Series because it was in Detroit. I was staying in Canada. And then Superstorm Sandy hit, so I had to drive back. And I knew it was going to take hours and hours. And what I listened to was Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition by Daniel Okrent. Mr. Okrent. It's the inventor of fantasy baseball that had nothing to do with anything it's just a great history on prohibition and a ripping good yarn i think i listened to time and a half that's an option too so go to audible podcast.com slash slate gist and maybe get dan ukran's book or any other books and there is also a guarantee that if you don't like the book you choose don't worry you could exchange any book you're not happy with for another title no questions asked comedy. Sure, it's funny, but when the laughter's done, can you write about it? Mike Sachs proves the answer is yes, in a good way. Poking a dead frog, conversations with today's top comedy writers brings him here. Mike Sachs also wrote the book called And Here's the Kicker. You've become, Mike, you've become like this uh, scribe, this chronicler, this amanuensis of uh, funny men and women.
1: I know, and I never meant to be. The first one was just an excuse to talk to my favorite writers. I mean, I was a comedy writer for print and for books, and I needed a way to talk to Larry Gelbart. I needed an <laughs> in with Davis Adaris. I needed an in with all these people and just call them up out of the blue without an interview is as you know is not a very successful. It's a little awkward. Yeah. A little bizarre. I found
0: it a podcast too, to scratch that
1: itch, but uh, you have some you have a goal I and mean, these people need a goal and and an interview is uh, worked for them. So it was a great opportunity to talk to some people, uh some of whom have since passed away like Larry Gelbart or Brecker who wrote for the uh Mark's Brothers, and punched up a script to The Wizard of Oz. Really? Yeah. It went from where to where? Well, actually, he wrote jokes for the lion. Yeah. Yeah. He he could only remember a few. One of them was the uh, put him up, put him up. Yeah. When he's pretending to be boxing. Yeah. But can you imagine that punching up? The Wizard of Oscar. I mean, it's almost like punching up the Torah. Yeah. You, know, like you imagine it has always existed.
0: Well, to bring it up forward a couple thousand years, isn't that actually what Luke did to John, some say? <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> Walk on
0: water is good, but let's do the fish and the loaves. So in this book, you have a number of great stars, and they're all throughout. I think more consciously than the last book, all different forms of comedy from Peg Lynch. How old would you say Peg Lynch
1: is? Well, she's 97 now. She was 96 when I talked with her. And
0: Megan Aram, How old would you say Megan I think she's 26. Right. So Megan is a, well, she's credited as a Parks and Rec writer. She is. She's a tweeter.
1: She yeah. was discovered tweeting yeah. and she has given hope to millions of tweeters out there
0: But it just seems like comedy writing used to have really narrow pathways to success like the National Lampoon's like a couple of TV shows Be on the staff of you know, the Sid Caesar show yielded 12 15 comedy writers same with the Letterman show now Totally diffuse.
1: Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of opportunities for someone to be on equal footing as everyone else You know a girl in her uh bedroom in Ohio can be conceivably on equal footing as a writer for The New Yorker. Now, that didn't exist even when I was first starting out. There was a few outlets, National Lampoon, Mad, Crack, New Yorker, Playboy, and now there are a million. So that's good and
0: bad. I've heard Seinfeld kind of break down comedy into minute details, which doesn't surprise you, given his type of comedy. But are there guys who might be fascinating this way and that, but they can't really even tell you
1: where it comes from? Oh, yeah. I interviewed 70 people for this new book. 45 made the final cut. A lot of people don't want to analyze it. They don't want to know where it comes from because it's a mystery that they feel that if they understood would disappear. And it's not as if I say, hey, how do you write a joke? It's when you go in every day or when you sit down to write... What are you thinking? Do you go into a zone? Do you do this? Do you do that? Because each of these writers approaches it differently. And one person writing a joke is going to come at it differently than the next. It's a very personal thing, writing a joke. And uh, it's going to differ from person to person. But a lot of people don't know. And I try to get to that but circumvent it, you know, to come at it from a different angle rather than just say, how do you write this?
0: Right. Were all the people who couldn't really articulate it, did some of them actually make the book because they had other great things
1: to say? If that's a case, like an Adam Resnick who wrote for Letterman or Get a Life and then Cabin Boy, there are other ways to you know, get to an interesting aspect of his life. Like how did you go from a kid in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania to running for Letterman that, to then creating Get a Life with Chris Elliott? So there are different approaches to finding out who these people are, what made them tick and how they got to where they are now. That's really what I want to know. Like, how did you go from a kid in wherever to having created such and such? How does that happen? Is there
0: a common theme to the stories who go to the kids who go from sort of nowhere to the top of the comedy pinnacle?
1: Yeah, there's usually a a sense of being a kid who was out of the loop, who was at home on prom night watching Black Adder bootlegs and who needed to find like minded people and who also were sort of shy and needed to create a. Something between them and another person. In this case, it's joke. Other people use magic. Other people use different things. So they were sort of out of the loop, which makes sense because as a comedy writer, you have to be a bit out of the loop to look in and to make judgment on the people who are on the inside, who are wealthy, who are who are good looking, who have it all. So these comedy writers, at the very least, whether they had it all or not, felt that they didn't have it all. And then there are common aspects of their personalities. A lot are anxious, uh, depressed, and OCD, which... I'm not quite sure if there are any more if this is more prevalent in comedy uh, than it would be for an electrician or a brain surgeon. It's just you happen to hear about it more from comedy writers. That's that's what they write about. They're honest about their depression and anxiety, and they write jokes to alleviate that depression and anxiety.
0: And so many comedy writers talk about, or comedians, but comedy writers talk about taping. Bits off of with an, a cassette recorder before the age of VCR, or then with VCRs, just taping bits and playing them over and over. But now these kids who were so immersed in it and could tape it and could memorize routines, now they're the comedy writers. How has how has that changed comedy?
1: Well, I think there's a difference too between an Brecker who came up in the 30s who was literally writing jokes to support his family, and the generation you mentioned, and then today's generation. I do wonder. It seems that the Earlier generations, of vaudeville generation, were much more street smart. You know, comedy was not taught in schools. It was not taught in books. So they were out there almost like they were joining a circus. They were off the beaten path. They were in the woods and off the path. I do think that the um, lack of street smarts has affected comedy a bit. I think it's more Harvard Lampooner than it used to be. Borscht Belty or even those I mean you look at Mel Brooks you look at Larry Gelbart they were all in World War II Bob yeah. Elliott and not only in World War II but often in D-Day and major battles so I think that can only affect the comedy in darker ways rather than it being self-referential Was there anyone in the book
0: either of these books who maybe liked going in but after their conversation kind of broke it open for you you went back to their work and said wow I'm, I'm appreciating this in an
1: even different way Yeah Davis Sedaris Uh, who I was a big fan of before, Um, we ended up talking for about five hours, actually closer to six hours, to such a degree that it was going so well and I had to take a bathroom break, I didn't want to stop the interview, so I ended up urinating in my work trash can twice. I hope that uh, no one is listening where I work.
0: Now, to be clear, this was not an in-person interview.
1: No, it was. Uh, did not it, he was on urinate yeah. into his uh, basket in France. Although I'd love to, actually, but it, it went really, really well. He was a super sweet guy. His knowledge of not only writing comedy but of writing uh, technically, just really good writing, is astonishing. Also, George Saunders is a genius. His knowledge of writing and how to teach writing to students—he teaches at Syracuse. Is phenomenal and he uses metaphors that I've never heard before. And he's also just the nicest guy. Those two guys in particular, George Saunders and David Sedaris, they're nicer to their readers and their fans than anyone out there at that level. It's just it's just remarkable.
0: Do you think the institution of the 1,200, 1,000 word piece, the New Yorker Shouts and Murmurs piece, do you think that's just harder to pull off? Because I kind of do. I, I just think about the New Yorker and every article, every piece of nonfiction will. The worst it'll be is like a B, maybe a B minus. But they're mostly A and A plus stuff. But with the shouts and murmurs, it's, you know, really hit or miss. Is that the nature of that kind of comedy?
1: Yeah, that's really hard to pull off. I mean, it's like I always think of it as landing on a on a moving aircraft carrier. You have to really stick the landing. And if you don't, you're going to go overboard. I think um, they do it better than anyone. But I think a lot of people aren't growing up interested in writing that sort of thing. And it's such a specific talent, specific art form. You know S.J. Perlman, those people don't exist anymore. The people who are coming up now want to write for a visual medium or an audio medium, not necessarily uh, humor for the written page. Mike Sachs, author of Poking a Dead Frog, conversations
0: with today's top comedy writers. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. And now the spiel. Today I am bequeathing my spiel. I am giving it over to a good cause. I said in the beginning that my spiel could take many forms, although most of the time it's been, you know, spieling about things. But now let's hear from an outside party. These words are from Drew Johnston. He wrote them for an online publication called The Occasional. How often does The Occasional come out? The word that comes to mind is intermittently, maybe even sporadically. The piece in question is titled, I think I should get more credit for killing Hitler. If the gist were a different kind of show, whose audience needed a little hand-holding through the confusing parts, I might say, And now, I think I should get a little more credit for killing Hitler, in which author Drew Johnston writes from the perspective of a man who killed Hitler, keeping in mind how the essay would go if someone really had killed Hitler. But over the last 10 weeks, I have driven away the audience that is easily confused or even reasonably confused. Who doesn't thrill to following the verbal curly cues of me, your humble host. So now the spiel presents Drew Johnston and I think
3: I should get more credit for killing Hitler. I think I should get more credit for killing Hitler. And I know you're thinking, who's Hitler? I've never heard of a guy named Hitler. But the only reason you're saying that is because I went back in time and killed him. If I hadn't built that time machine and gone back to kill Hitler, you'd all be saying to yourselves, man, I wish I had a time machine so I could kill Hitler. In fact, growing up, that was such a common sentiment, it never dawned on me no one would know who he was when I returned. So I took out this ad in the Times to help explain why everyone owes me. I'm not looking to be a hero, but a thank you would be nice. First, who is Hitler? It's a good question. Hitler was the dictator of Germany in the 1930s and 1940s. He started World War II, he took over most of Europe, and most horrifically, he was responsible for the Holocaust, where he systematically slaughtered over 6 million Jews, gypsies, and homosexuals. Sounds like someone you'd want to get in a time machine and kill? Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. But wait a minute, you're thinking. Germany? That peaceful country that created the magical yogurt that cures diabetes? No one from Germany would do that. Yes, they would. In fact, you wouldn't know about der and nine Diabetes because it would not exist. Because I killed Hitler, Germany spent the 1930s and 40s developing that yogurt instead of committing mass genocide. Now, did I create that yogurt? No. That would be taking credit away from those brilliant Jewish, gypsy, and homosexual scientists. But am I indirectly responsible? Yes, I am. But what about World War II? I've never heard of that. Okay, well, remember the Everybody Gang Up on Italy War? Instead of that, we had World War II. It was basically the everybody gang up on Italy war, except a lot of our effort was focused on fighting Germany. And instead of lasting two weeks, it lasted six years. It was really bad. Like so bad, we actually renamed the Great War just so we could put into perspective how bad it was. We retroactively named the worst war the world's ever seen World War I because this war was so much worse, we had to make it a sequel. And again, all I'm looking for is a thank you. You want more? Fine. The award-winning video games Call of Diplomacy, Call of Diplomacy 2, and Call of Diplomacy Ghosts? Those were all me. Michael Jordan's mustache? I'm the reason it's cool and not insane. Our Moon Colony? Honestly, I can't figure out exactly how I'm responsible for that one, but it has to be me because it certainly wasn't there before. And before you ask, no, I can't make another time machine. The original one burned up on the return trip, and it relied on car parts found exclusively in Volkswagens, something you've never heard about. Plus, if we're being completely honest, there's no point in making another one. I've already done the one thing you'd want to use a time machine for, and it hasn't exactly been a boon for my social life. Just a little credit. That's all I'm asking for. I don't need a statue or a plaque. I mean, sure, some sort of medal or presidential recognition would be great, but honestly, I'd settle for the people I meet in the street looking me in the eyes and saying thank you instead of, why are you telling me about how you went back in time to kill a child?
0: Thank you, Drew Johnston. Thank you for that essay. And I think it is high time. We all thank you for killing Hitler. And you know, now that the baby name Adolf has surpassed Mason and Jacob and trails only Noah and Liam on the list of popular baby names, it's a fun exercise to wonder, what if you hadn't killed Hitler? Also of note on that list, the growing popularity of the boy's name Kermit. Funnily enough, Drew's brother is named Kermit. Kermit Johnston, and he is author of the essay, You Might Really Dislike Me If You Understood the Implications of the Fact That I Killed Jim Henson. And that is it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, who sports a cute bob haircut, is both the producer of Slate Podcasts and Killed Peggy Fleming. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate podcasts, but you might remember him from either his chart-topping single, American Pie, or his essay, I Got Don McLean Remanded to a Jordanian Prison Before He Could Develop an Interest in Music. You could subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a review. You could listen to us on SoundCloud. You can sign up for our daily email at slate.com slash just email. You can go to facebook.com slash slate gist or email the gist at slate.com. I do want to thank you all for listening to this cast and for downloading on Nook my gripping story. I hooked a young Steve Jobs on airplane glue before he could amount to anything. And sincerely, thank you for listening.